0: Support for this podcast comes from the Newbauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. For many years, Krista Bilton's father was known to the many other people he fathered as Sperm Donor 150 from the California Cryobank. It was one of the very early sperm banks founded in 1977. However, Krista and her sister Caitlin knew him as Jeffrey, their father, although he was seldom around. Krista was the first offspring of his donated sperm. Her mother, Deborah, is a lesbian who was determined to have children. At that time, in the early 1980s, many sperm banks didn't even accept lesbians. She actually chose Jeffrey to father her children after seeing him at a salon. She convinced him to help her through a sperm bank. He reluctantly agreed. When she failed to get pregnant, they tried with a turkey baster at Deborah's home and were successful. Deborah made Jeffrey promise to never donate sperm to another woman. But donating sperm is how he ended up making a living for almost a decade. He was able to keep that a secret from Krista, her sister Caitlin, who he also fathered, and their mother Deborah until 2007 when a New York Times article was headlined, Sperm Donor Father Ends His Anonymity that anonymous donor who came out, was Jeffrey. It's estimated he fathered somewhere between a few dozen and over a hundred children. Krista Bilton's new memoir is titled Normal Family on Truth, Love, and How I Met My 35 Siblings. The memoir is also about her upbringing and her mother Deborah, who Krista describes as a pioneer in many of the New Age religions and a few cults, kind of the opposite direction of Krista's maternal great-grandfather, Colbert Olson, who served as the governor of California from 1939 to 43. The memoir is a fascinating story about growing up different and trying to understand the meaning of family when you're biologically related to so many children from the same donor. Krista Bilton, welcome to Fresh Air. So your mother made your father promise never to donate a sperm to any other woman. She paid him Directly for the sperm, and to keep that promise, um, tell us more about how you found out about your many other siblings.
1: Oh, yes, well, thank you so much, Terry, for having me. um so, as you mentioned, my mother discovered when this New York Times story came out that my father had secretly been a sperm donor for almost a decade. Um, And she discovered that because he called her on Valentine's Day in 2007 and told her to go get a copy of the New York Times. Um, So she went down to the newsstand, the local Palisades newsstand, and there on the cover was this story about my father with his arm around uh, a child that looked just like me and my sister. And so that led to... um, what she and I would call a a total nervous breakdown. Um, And she determined that in addition to sending my father several threats about not mentioning us in any of his preceding media, um, she decided she was never going to tell my sister and I this big secret, partially because she felt like the way we had been raised was already so different. And she, I think, as as a lesbian raising kids in the... 80s and 90s already had a lot of shame about how different our family was, and she felt I think that discovering this secret of my father's and that we had all of these biological siblings would. She was worried that that would be incredibly upsetting to us, so she decided that she was never going to tell us this big secret. And um, and you know, as she proceeded to have this nervous breakdown, she then discovered through a wild series of events that I get into in the book that I was potentially dating one of my brothers. And it was this uh, discovery that led her to finally sit my sister and I down on the sofa and tell us. That is so crazy to think
0: that you were dating somebody who was also the progeny of your father's sperm. (laughs) Um, So when did you, how old were you when you found out that your father was basically a sperm donor for your mother, but she stayed in touch with him and convinced him to have a role in your life.
1: Yeah, so this conversation that she had with us on the couch led... You know, I hadn't understood the relationship between my mother and father. I had been told growing up that he and she were good friends who had decided to have a child together. So this moment when she unveiled the story of these donor children, um, it's really what led me to, to start investigating the story of my life because it turned out that a lot of the stories my mother had told me about my upbringing were fibs, which was her tender word for bending the truth. And so that's really what this book is about, is me trying to parse through the real story of what happened um, versus what, what my mother told me. So w- when your father, Jeffrey, outed himself
0: as this kind of prominent sperm donor, <laughs> um, he also outed your mother's secret, the one that she withheld from you, that your father was basically a sperm donor, that she had talked him into doing this first through a sperm bank and when that didn't work through, like, the turkey baster. there. So um,
1: how old were you when you found this out? When my mother decided to have children, um she she was the she didn't know a single lesbian in her circle who had had a kid, so in a way she was really embarking on in in this whole new world, and she had no no role models who had gone before her to look to and how to do this. And she, after a wild and crazy journey that involved her asking Warren Beatty if he wanted to father her a child, they were good friends. Um, there was an organization called the Repository of Germinal Choice in the in the early '80s that was going around selling the sperm of Nobel laureates to try and have genius children. And it's, I mean, it sounds oh. wild in, uh, in retrospect. And after she decided not to use that sperm of this Nobel laureate she had purchased, she decided that she really wanted to know the father of her children. So she went on a manhunt and my father walked into a hair salon in Beverly Hills and she looked at him and he was this handsome put together stranger that she said she saw, she looked at him and she just knew this was, this was the one, this was the one she wanted to father her children. So she asked him out to lunch and offered him $2,000 to father her child. And she took him to the California cryo bank To have him tested for STDs and to make sure that he had a high sperm count. And it's when he saw some men lining up to donate sperm that he got the idea he could do this professionally. So you first found out about some of your siblings
0: um, that were also fathered by Jeffrey through the sperm bank. Um and at first you didn't want to have any contact with them but then about 10 years later you decided to invite many of them over to your home so that you could meet them and your mother and your sister were dead set against this why were they so opposed to it and why did you actually want to
1: go through with it as you said when i first discovered the siblings i wanted nothing to do with them for almost 10 years um you know, soon after my mother sat me down on the couch to tell me about this, um, one of the siblings, you know, they had started a they had started a Facebook group for the children of donor 150 that was growing by the day. And soon after my mother told me about this biological family, one of those siblings reached out to me on Facebook, and I had a panic attack um, because growing up I had had such a complex family unit with so many... My mother, you know, had a hard time staying in relationships. So in addition to having my father in and out of my life, I also had many second moms who would come in sometimes with their own children. And so I would develop these relationships with these step-siblings. And then when they broke up, those would end. And so I think the idea of having more family members, um, more potential family members, was just so overwhelming for me that I couldn't deal with it at that moment and then i had a and wi- i had an absolutely wild experience with one sister who it turned out had gone to the same tiny art school across the country that i had gone to and when she and i connected through an absolutely wild series of events and she had such a, an enthusiastic view of this entire thing it it changed my attitude and it made me realize that the way I viewed this larger biological family was largely a choice, and that any moment I could I could be enthusiastic about it and see the beauty in it, and and I became curious. Um, so I sort of let her take the lead, and and she suggested that I meet some of the siblings, and so that's why I invited them to my house. When
0: you gathered some of your siblings together at your home, what did you feel you had in common with them, both like biologically, physically? but also emotionally?
2: Hmm.
1: The genetic similarities between me and the siblings are, are truly wild. I mean, of course there's a lot we don't share in common, but the vast majority of us have the same big toe. We have the same dimple on our left cheek. We have the same, um, uh, many of us share ADD as something we struggle with. Um, we all have the same laugh. So the similarities were truly wild. I think also the emotional experience of this discovery, many share a similar journey with it. And of all of them,
0: you are the only one who grew up knowing your father. That's right. So did they feel like family or did they just feel like people who shared some traits and shared the same father, although they didn't know it until many years later? I mean, how connected did you feel to them?
1: You know it's bizarre that I I felt very connected to them in in a in a strange way. Um, I I've heard, you know, I grew up in a very tiny family. I didn't have cousins, but several of them who had larger families um, compared it to the experience of having cousins. There's definitely a, a biological connection that I don't think you can deny and and most of them feel that way.
0: Let's talk a little bit about your mother's predicament in the early 1980s. As a a lesbian who wanted to have children, when being gay wasn't as accepted as it is today, although today it is definitely totally not accepted in many circles and in many states. But um, in many places, things have changed since the early 80s. Um, But she didn't have a lot of options in terms of how to, you know, how to have a baby, how to become pregnant so can you talk a little bit about the position that she was in and what she told you about that
1: yeah it was really interesting because growing up my mother was very much in and out of the closet and I think that I you know I think she had a complex relationship to her sexuality having grown up in a very conservative family um, you know in the 50s and 60s at a time when you know, she would later tell me that when she when she realized she was a lesbian, she thought she was the only one in the world. And she didn't even know that the word lesbian existed. And that's just such a different time period. We've come so far from then that I can't even fathom what that psychological experience would have been like. Um, you know, and the year she was born, the, you know, psychology manual still called homosexuality a uh, mental disorder. So... My mother had a lot of shame about her sexuality, and I think she carried that shame into... She wanted so desperately to have a family, but it was that was something that she struggled with for a lot of my life. And in many ways, the book, while it's about finding this larger family, it's, it's also a portrait of growing up with my larger-than-life gay mother and also what that was like in the 80s and 90s. When she
0: met your father at a salon when she saw him at a salon and introduced herself this was in Beverly Hills she not only found him physically attracted when she asked him about his life she was very taken with what she found out about him what did she learn about him at that first meeting that made her so
1: impressed that reaffirmed yes he should be the father of my children yeah it's a great question she um both of his parents had gone to Ivy League colleges His, he had, and yet he had dropped out of college to study transcendental meditation. And as my mother was someone who had pioneered many new age cults in the 70s and 80s, I think that she and my father shared a very spiritual outlook on life. But she also liked the prestigious background of his parents. And she also, um, they were wealthy. I think they were Harvard educated. They were wealthy, Harvard educated, her, his mother had gone to Wellesley. He, had, he told her that his great uncle had been a Supreme Court justice. That turned out to be a fib. Um, but, but yeah, she, she liked many, many aspects of his background. He seemed highly intelligent, which he was, artistic. He played the guitar and, and was musical. So I think he, he checked off a lot of her boxes. But then, of course, he also agreed to do it, which was, you know, pretty shocking, I think. He agreed reluctantly. How did your mother convince him? She gave him $2,000. Yeah.
0: <laughs> very convincing. <laughs> An offer he couldn't refuse.
1: <laughs> yes, and I, I don't think he realized what he was signing up for. I think my mother had a plan for him that was well beyond that initial transaction. Well, it's not
0: what he signed up for. He signed up for, okay, I'll do it, but I want no responsibility for the child. But after giving birth, when she was asked to sign the birth certificate and and that she needed to put the father's name on it and she needed his signature, I think, she convinced him, just like, please come and do this. And so he officially became your father as opposed to like an anonymous sperm donor. Um, And then she kept kind of reeling him in more and more by paying him to visit you something you didn't learn about till many years later
1: that's right that's right um my mom my mother is a magical and incredibly loving woman but she's also incredibly complex and willful and i think yeah in many ways this book is is as i said gr- about growing up with her she's a woman who struggled with alcoholism Like I said, someone who had cycled through several cults, Um, and she's someone who, throughout my childhood, often paid the bills through wild pyramid schemes that led us to living in multi-million-dollar mansions one minute to being on the verge of homelessness the next. So, yeah, it's 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 about this biological family, but it's also a portrait of of growing up with my mother.
0: So let's talk a little bit about what it was like then for your father Jeffrey to donate sperm. I mean, after your mother paid him to do it out of her own savings, and then he ended up you know doing it professionally, so to speak, at at the uh, sperm bank um so how did it work at the sperm bank? What were the payments like? How often was he allowed to to donate?
1: Well, you know, a wild a wild thing about this story is this larger conversation about the ethics around sperm donation. I mean, one thing that's wild is that you know, back in the late 70s, early 80s, that was really the birth of this of this business and back then it was really the wild west and and a man could donate as many times a week as he was able to produce enough sperm for the donation and My father did do that for almost a decade, and so what's especially wild to consider is that there's still no regulation in the United States. In the U.K., a donor's sperm can be used to create a maximum of 10 families, but in the U.S., it's different, and there's no legal limits on how many children a donor can produce.
0: He became the most popular donor at the sperm bank, the California Cryobank. There was a waiting list for his sperm. What what did he do to describe
1: himself that made him so appealing? There were a few things. One was that the nurses recommended my father to many families, um, partially because they saw how physically good-looking he was. He was you know, the year after, or sorry, the month after I was born, my father appeared as the centerfold in Playgirl magazine. So he was a very physically handsome person. And so, and he had this pedigree of these parents that had gone to these big schools. And he was also strategic, as he describes himself, when he wrote his donor profile, which is that many of the donors that were donating at this early time were, were men that this firm bank had recruited from the medical school at UCLA. And my father was this artistic, spiritual man that, in many ways, stood out for families that weren't looking for the med student. So his profile at that time was just so different from most of the men that were in that, that donor book. I think that, that can is a lot of it. I also think, perhaps, it's because a lot of men didn't donate for as long as he did. So they had a big supply of his sperm. Um, I've also heard stories that the head of the California Cryobank was himself promoting my father's sperm. When when parents would call and ask, which donor, would, which should we use? He would say, you should use donor 150. He even went so far as to have my father be the only donor that came to the sperm bank's second grand office opening. Well, let's take
0: another break here. If you're just joining us, my guest is Krista Bilton, author of the new memoir, Normal Family, on truth, Love, and how I met my 35 siblings. We'll talk more after a short break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Let's get back to my interview with Krista Bilton, author of the new memoir ironically titled Normal Family. Her mother, Deborah, who's a lesbian, had Krista and her sister Caitlin with the help of a man, Jeffrey, who she convinced to become a sperm donor in the early 1980s. She made him promise to never donate sperm to anyone else. But he ended up making a living for several years by donating sperm, fathering dozens of children, maybe even as much as 100 or more. He never told Krista or her mother until 2007, after a New York Times article was published in which he ended his anonymity as sperm donor 150. Although your mother was convinced that he would be the perfect donor, she slowly started to discover disturbing things about him. I don't think she was pleased when she learned that he was a playgirl, centerfold a month after you were born. And then it turns out he made his living for a while doing stripograms dressed as a police officer.
1: <laughs> That's right.
0: So it was just like, happy birthday, you're busted, ha this is a stripogram, that kind of thing. That's right. Yeah. And then there were medical problems, too. So talk about some of the disturbing things that your mother slowly found out about him.
1: Yeah. So short, you know, sometime after I was born, he started calling her in the middle of the night with visions of Mother Mary coming to him, telling him he was the second coming of Christ. Um, he he had some very peculiar spiritual beliefs that weren't shared by her. Um, and he lived a very alternative lifestyle. So he he didn't really you know, he had odd jobs, as you mentioned, as a stripogram, um, as a playgirl centerfold. And as she got to know him and as she brought him into my life as this father figure, the way that he lived his life wasn't necessarily the way she had the projected image of him that she had.
0: And then over time he started believing in conspiracy theories about 9-11. He became homeless. For a while he was trying to support himself on the Venice Beach boardwalk selling massages for $10, a massage. Um, Your mother tried to stay in touch with him and tried to help him, buying him things, giving him money when she could, letting him stay at your home sometimes. Um, Did you sense that there were problems? Did you sense that he was having mental health problems? I should mention here, before your mother met him, when he was around 20, he was diagnosed as having paranoid schizophrenia.
1: Yes, that, that fact is something I only learned in researching my book, actually, when, when talking to his brother. Um, so that was a surprise to me as well. And my father doesn't believe that he has mental illness, I should say. So, and he didn't believe with that, he didn't agree with that diagnosis. So he felt that there was no need to mention it in his donor profile because he thought that it was ridiculous. And, you know, since that time, we know a lot more about mental illness. We know a lot more about the biology of it. And I didn't, I didn't know growing up that that could be something that, that was in my genetic inheritance. I, I, didn't, I just thought my father was this quirky, eccentric man. And for much of my upbringing, I, just, I loved him and, and enjoyed when he was around. Now that you know more about his mental health,
0: what's your reaction?
1: You know, it, it's the discovery of the siblings, some of whom share some some mental health issues, has made me change my perspective on nature nurture. nurture. I, I think growing up, I always thought nurture was the most important. And I think this experience has made me come to appreciate the nature of it all and I think it's really powerful to know where you come from. And every family has some, some heavier things in their genetic inheritance and some lighter things. And um, I think that it can, you know, you can be easier on yourself when you know that things you struggle with are not something you can control. Maybe there is a biological component. And when you look at it that way, treatment is also something that opens up. Whereas when you're blaming yourself or think that something is originating with you or something that happened to you, you approach it differently. Since you found out about the early
0: diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia while doing your research for your memoir, I'm assuming that your half-siblings did not know about this. Did you feel a responsibility to tell them or did you want to withhold that from them, afraid that it might be upsetting to them?
1: You know, something that the siblings and I all share is this wonderful desire to analyze and look at all of this. And, you know, one of our Discord threads is about DNA and genetics and health histories. And um, so with the siblings I was closest with, I, I very quickly shared this information with them because I think knowing that, you, that there's something that might be a risk factor for you can change your decision making. Um, so... For example, I you know I'm sober, i don't I don't smoke weed because there have been connections between that and schizophrenia. i I don't drink alcohol. You know, I think that in the same way that if you find your family has a history of heart disease, you might not eat as many hamburgers. Um, there is a sense, too, when we find out about a new sibling, we've all had discussions about how to present certain information because it can already be very overwhelming for someone to discover that they have a different biological father than they knew of, and then look online and see that there are all these New York Times stories about him and that he lives this alternative lifestyle. Already, that's a lot. So um, we do we do just thoughtfully engage with new siblings as, they, as they're as they discovered on Ancestry and 23andMe because there's a lot of information out there about, about our father, and getting to know these siblings is in itself a journey. So,
0: The things that you learned about your father and that your mother learned about him after the fact, after asking him to donate his sperm, and how wild it is to have like met so many siblings and know that he fathered so many children, this might sound to some people like you're making an argument against sperm donation. Is that, what the, is that the way you want what you're saying to be interpreted?
1: Oh, absolutely not. I think that there should be more regulation on the industry. And I have. I think that anonymity of a sperm donor is something, you know, they've taken away anonymity in the UK with sperm donors. And I think by the time children reach 18, they're allowed to know the identity of their sperm donor. Because studies have been shown that when children know, you know, whether they're adopted or their donor conceived, knowing the identity of the father has serious health benefits. So I. I do strongly believe that children should have the right to know where they come from, but all of these beautiful, all of these beautiful young men and women came from my father who are living beautiful, wonderful lives and um and if it weren't for my father donating the way he did, they wouldn't exist. So absolutely not. I th- and you know, if my father wasn't quite a bit if he wasn't as quirky as he was, I don't know that he would have donated and and given all these parents all of their beautiful children. So that's absolutely not what I'm saying.
0: Let me reintroduce you here. If you're just joining us, my guest is Krista Bilton, author of the new memoir, Normal Family, on truth, love, and how I met my 35 siblings. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to my interview with Krista Bilton, author of the new memoir, Normal Family. It's about growing up the daughter of a lesbian who became pregnant in the early 80s with the help of a sperm donor who kept secret that he went on to make a living donating sperm and fathered dozens, maybe even over a hundred children.
1: Did you interview him for the book? I did. I interviewed my dad extensively for the book. Um... I tried to present his point of view when it differed from mine or my mother's. What was interesting is while my father has many philosophies, you know, many conspiracy theories about the world today, he is incredibly lucid about the past. And when talking about the story of my conception, for example, his and my mother's stories lined up exactly. So that was that was amazing. And um, I also discovered a lot of things about my father's childhood that I didn't know that gave me a lot of compassion for him. Um, so that was a wonderful experience, but he did, he reached out to me, I mean, this might be funny to share, but he, he reached out with a correction this morning. Um, he said, I did a, a fantastic job, over, a fantastic job overall, but he wanted to correct one of the conspiracy theories that he had. He said, I never said that your eggs would be harvested by aliens. I said that eventually women would be used as baby makers for the babies to be used as food for the growing clones. Oh, okay. (laughs) Uh, What
0: was your reaction to that correction?
1: You know, I was grateful that he didn't take issue with some of the other things. You know, I I don't want to hurt my father. I I love my father, and... um, I tried to be sensitive to him in the book while being honest. And so I was grateful that that was the issue he had. Um,
0: Let's talk about your childhood. Um, Growing up, you were the only child you knew who was the daughter of a lesbian. And your mother had a complicated relationship with her own sexuality there were times when she was like way out of the closet and she'd go on TV and talk about that she was a lesbian. And she even mentioned that your father was a sperm donor on TV, right? That's right. And and in fact, that's what made your father decide, well, I'm not going to keep my pledge anymore to just have her be the only person I donated my sperm to. She broke her promise to me to keep me anonymous. So I'm just going to go, you know, donate a lot more sperm and make some money, um, But anyway, so she went from being really public and on TV to then like losing one of her jobs when people found out that she was gay. And then that kind of forced her back into the closet to protect her ability to earn a living. So what were some of the difficulties you faced as a child um, not being sure of what was okay to tell people and when it was okay to tell them?
1: Yeah, I think in many ways, my pride around my mother's sexuality mirrored hers. So at times when she was sort of out out in the public or speaking on talk shows about, you know, our non-traditional family and, you know, leading the charge on gay and lesbian expos, all kinds of things, she, I think I really adopted that pride and it was something that I was very open with at school. But I think at times, like you said, when she lost her job due to it or, or, went back in the closet, I think, you know, as kids, we so often take our parents' attitudes towards things. And so I also became deeply ashamed of it. And I was bullied at school for it quite a bit. Um, you know, I got, I went to a lot of different schools growing up because things were up and down with us financially. And, um, you know, there were, there were schools I went to where it was a secret, where I didn't have a single friend who knew that my mom was gay, for example. And, you know, there was there's a scene in the book I document when one of the children knows my secret and she tells the whole school, and it's it's awful for me. So I think people forget that so much has changed. I mean, in, in so many parts of the world, nothing has changed, and homophobia is still what it is. But it's wild to think that even in Los Angeles, where I grew up, this is what the 80s and 90s were like. Um, your mother's
0: grandfather was uh, governor of California. Her father was a judge, whereas your mother you describe as a, a pioneer of New Age, several New Age religions and cults. It sounds like she kind of
1: went in the opposite
0: direction of her family.
1: My mother did have polit- early political ambitions. I think back when she was closeted in the 70s and going to college at UCLA, she studied political science. And then I think largely to deal with what was happening at home and the complexity of her father's escalating alcoholism, I think what she did is she went in search of another family. And I think, you know, that's usually a recipe for someone who is drawn to cult-like organizations. Um, so first she became deeply involved with Nishra and Shoshu Buddhism, which some people believe was a cult. Um, that's the group that practices the chant Nam-myoho-renge-kyo. Yes. One of the beliefs of the Namyaho Renge Kyo Buddhists is that if you chant this magical chant, good things will happen to you. And if you don't chant, bad things will happen to you and your family. So when my mother, you know, at that time she was always also discouraged from her lesbianism through the group. So they told her that her feelings towards women were part of her negative karma and that she could chant to remove this aspect of herself. And there was a point after becoming a leader in this organization and, you know, women would come to my mother for advice and counsel and they would be telling her all kinds of real problems about their life and at some point telling them that all they had to do was chant this magic chant and everything would work out didn't ring true to her any longer. So she left the group and it was shortly after that that her father, her father's tragic death happened and for a long time my mother carried around the belief that the reason this happened was because she left the group and didn't chant.
0: You're married now to Nick Bilton, a former New York Times tech reporter who now writes for Vanity Fair. Um, you have two children. What, it feels, what does it feel like for you to be in a stable family, to be a parent and wife in a stable family?
1: Oh, it's, it's, it's a magical—it's it's, it's wonderful— I, I, I would trade nothing for it. Just the idea that, you know, my home is not at risk of, I'm not at risk of being evicted from my home tomorrow, and it's not a huge life stressor if we have a doctor's bill that, that comes up that was unexpected. I mean, I, you know, one of the silver linings, I think, from coming from a, an unpredictable childhood is that if you're able to get out of that, you just feel so grateful for everything.
0: Do you feel like you have a roadmap for raising children since you were raised in such unusual circumstances?
1: Uh, I, I do. I think, you know, my, my mother had a lot of beautiful qualities when she wasn't struggling with her addictions. You know, there, there are many ways that she raised me that I, I, I cherish and she's an amazing grandmother. Um, she's, she's over as much as we're willing to take her help to help with the kids. Um, I think the big thing, and this is something that I share with all my siblings, is that my mother, you know, there are a lot of kids out there who, who feel unwanted, and I always felt that my mother desperately wanted to be a mother, and that is such a gift, just to be, to be wanted and to have someone who cares about you so deeply. I, I, I think that I'm very lucky for that.
0: Krista Bilton, thank you so much for telling us some of your story, and congratulations on your memoir. Thank you so much, Terry, for having me. Krista Bilton's new memoir is called Normal Family on Truth, Love and How I Met My 35 Siblings. After we take a short break, TV critic David Bianculli will review the new HBO series The Rehearsal in which comedian Nathan Fielder gives advice to people about their personal lives. His previous advice series was on Comedy Central and was called Nathan for You. This is fresh air. This is fresh air. Almost a decade ago, in 2013, Nathan Fielder starred in a Comedy Central series that lasted until 2017 called Nathan for You, and it had Nathan interacting with real people, advising them on how to improve their respective business ventures. His advice was often extreme or outlandish, which is where the reality show's comedy came from, but the reactions and interactions were real. Now Nathan Fielder is back with a new series premiering Friday on HBO. This one has him offering advice to people about their real-life personal issues. It's called The Rehearsal, and our TV critic David Bianculli has this
2: review. The Rehearsal is hard to pin down. It's a comedy, but only in spots. Other times, it's unexpectedly touching, even dramatic. It's a reality show, maybe one of the most real reality shows I've ever seen in capturing actual behavior. Yet it does so, much of the time, in absurdly unnatural, artificially created environments. And while Nathan Fielder has set up his new series as a scientific social experiment of sorts, trying to help people find the best ways to maneuver in a given situation, many times he's the one doing the learning, or becoming a subject in his own experiment. In the premiere episode, Nathan places a very specific ad targeted at people who have some issue they're trying to overcome. A 50-year-old teacher named Cor Skeet replies, and his issue is that he's lied to a small group of friends for years, claiming to have had an advanced educational degree. He wants to confess the truth to one woman in particular, but is afraid of her reaction. Nathan's pitch And the premise of his show is that if you practice a series of scenarios and variables, you can find the best way to proceed. In other words, you can prepare for this event with a series of rehearsals, then perform it for real. The concept itself sounds absurd. And that absurdity is only added to when Nathan uses HBO's significant program budget to go all in. Organizational flow charts break down the various possibilities. Actors are hired and coached to play in rehearsals the people the subjects will confront in real life. And entire sets are built where those practice sessions are staged, working replicas of homes, bars, and restaurants where the real meetings eventually will occur. Sounds crazy? Why would anyone say yes to such an idea? Well, because Nathan Fielder doesn't leave anything to chance. Not even his pitch to his prospective subjects, as in this scene, when he first visits the apartment of the teacher, Cora and presents his plan for the rehearsal by talking about his past series, Nathan For You, which the teacher hasn't seen.
3: I mean, you should check it out. Oh, then definitely. Um, <laughs> but a lot of it involved working with real people. Yeah. So I'd have to put myself in all these uncertain environments, and I I'd, I'd became really good at predicting how people would act in a future situation. Okay, okay. For example, yeah. like this conversation's going pretty well, right? Okay. I, I mean, do you that. think so? I don't so know. F- um, so far, so good. I mean, we've been having fun. Uh, yeah. I-, I assume we've been yeah. sharing some laughs so far. Yeah, I hope to continue that way. <laughs> <laughs> so that's no accident. Everything that's happened so far today, I've rehearsed it dozens of times. These exact words in a replica of your home, With an actor playing you. Okay. Remember a couple weeks ago when the gas company came by because of a leak in your building? Yes. Well, there wasn't a leak in your building, that was my team. uh... And when you gave them access, they secretly made a digital map of your entire home. We then recreated every detail of the space as a physical set in a warehouse a few miles from here. And with the help of a fake you, I could practice every single permutation of this interaction and have a plan for it.
2: I know. Now it sounds creepy. In fact, it sounds a bit like the Magic Christian, that cult Terry Southern movie where Peter Sellers played a rich guy who used his fortune to pull elaborate tricks on people just to see what they'd do for money. But Nathan Fielder isn't out to make fun of the people in his shows. He's genuinely interested in helping them. And once each experiment in the rehearsal begins, something strange and hard to explain happens. You really start to see patterns and flaws and obstacles to overcome. You see people, real people. I've seen five episodes of the rehearsal. In addition to the teacher who wants to confess his falsehood, there's an episode about a man who wants his brother to release a grandfather's inheritance. And another about a woman who is afraid to commit to the responsibilities of parenthood and marriage. Not all of these experiments reach their natural or expected conclusions. Despite all of Nathan's meticulous planning and flowcharts, there's a lot of chaos theory at play here. In one upcoming episode, Nathan wants to confront Angela, one of his subjects, about her commitment to the pretend marital relationship experiment. So in true rehearsal fashion, before he does that, he rehearses that confrontation with an actress playing Angela, who hits him with some improvised and very direct questions. Is this silly? Or is this something that I should take seriously? (laughs) It's silly and serious.
3: I mean, it's complicated. Life can be more than one thing, right? Life's complicated and... Why are you even here, huh? What's the real reason, honestly?
2: Okay, well, why are you here, huh? Why are you doing this? Are you you really trying to help me? Or am I the silly part that you talk about, huh? Is my life the joke? Do you sit here with your friends at the end of the day laughing at me?
3: No, you're not the joke, not at all.
2: No one's the joke. The situations are funny, but interesting too. Nathan is visibly thrown by that version of the rehearsal and asks for another in which she reacts a little more nicely. But the real event with the real Angela is harder to control and to predict. The rehearsal is unlike any TV show I've ever seen, and I'm not even sure I'd classify it as a comedy. But whatever Nathan Fielder is up to here, I'm fascinated by it.
0: David Bianculli is a professor of television studies at Rowan University in New Jersey. He reviewed Nathan Fielder's new series, The Rehearsal, which begins tomorrow on HBO. If you'd like to catch up on Fresh Air interviews you missed, like this week's interview with New Yorker staff writer Andrew Morantz about how Americans on the political right have turned to Hungary's authoritarian government as a model, or with Raphael Augustine, who wrote for the series Jane the Virgin and has a new memoir called Illegally Yours about growing up in America undocumented, check out our podcast. You'll find lots of Fresh Air interviews. And to read about what goes on behind the scenes on our show, check out our newsletter, which you can subscribe to via our website, freshair.npr.org. Fresh Air's executive producer is Jenny Miller. Our technical director is Audrey Bentham. Our engineer this week is Adam Staniszewski, with additional support today from Al Banks. <laughs> Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salat, Phyllis Myers, Roberto Sherrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne Reboldonato, Seth Kelly, Susan Yakundi, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Thea Chaloner directed today's show. I'm Terry Gross.